Today's episode of the Theater People podcast is brought to you by Stage Door Manor. For information on their summer theater programs, check them out at stagedoormanor.com. Also, Theater People is the official podcast of BroadwayCon 2018. Tickets for BroadwayCon 2018 are now on sale and have never been less expensive. Find information and tickets at broadwaycon.com and stay tuned after the episode to hear one young woman's favorite memory from BroadwayCon 2017. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. Today's episode is in two segments, you guys. First up, actress and now author Alexandra Silber. And in the second half of the show, we'll chat with Tony winner Reed Burney, currently and terrifyingly starring as O'Brien in the unspeakably jarring and fantastic 1984. So I first met Alexandra Silber back in 2015 when I went to the Broadway theater for my interview with Adam Cantor, who was co-starring with Alexandra in Fiddler on the Roof. We walked in the stage door at the same time, and she just said, hi. And I don't know what it was, but I just immediately was charmed by her and totally fell in love. She has that kind of energy where you meet her and you just immediately want to be her best friend. Anyway, she's written a new book, a novel, called After Anna Tevka, which follows the journey of the character Hodel after the action of Fiddler on the Roof takes place. She's an acclaimed performer who has starred in the West End productions of Fiddler on the Roof and The Woman in White. She made her Broadway debut alongside Tyne Daly and Sierra Bogus in the 2011 production of Masterclass. And of course, she returned to Broadway in 2015 in Fiddler on the Roof. I'm madly in love with her. Here's our conversation. Hi, Al Silber. Hello. I, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you too. I got okay. I, I told you I wasn't going to tell you this until we started recording. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I okay. We we have something like 120 episodes of this podcast now. I think that I got the most emotional I've ever gotten preparing for this interview. Really? I was sobbing at my computer today. Why? Listening to like interviews of you talking about after Anna Tevka and like um, your journey with it and and uh, like thank you know you. It, I think the thing about the one of the things that I always respond to with Fiddler on the Roof in that story is like fathers and daughters because I have a three year old daughter. Yeah, and so like hearing about your story about you and your dad and then right. you it just like the whole. One of the things that like really stood out to me with this your production of Fiddler on the Roof this uh-huh. past time, I think because it's the first time I've seen the show since I became a father, oh, wow. was how yeah. like Tevia is the most. This man is going out of his way to make to rearrange his world so that his kids can be happy. Of course, and I don't. He's a good. That. He's a good and actually like deeply ordinary guy. Yeah, and you know I think what's really interesting one of especially so first of all before I go on about that thank you oh my That's god yeah very of course. generous and kind and I. You know, I think there are just certain things that hit us in a certain way very deeply and they come into our lives at a moment when we're particularly spiritually or emotionally porous. And for me, Fiddler just was one of those pieces of theater and I was so lucky to be able to have multiple experiences with it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, so sorry, I sort of just jumped in because I had so many things I wanted to say to you. Let's jump in. I'm in. Uh, Let's do this. Um, first of all, we've been talking about doing this interview. For, we'll run into each other at a thing, and we'll for be like, about we, two we? years." I know. <laughs> anyway, I'm here. Hi, hi. So, hi, girl. Hi. I feel like we just need to hold hands the whole time. I know. Um, talk about your. How many times have you done Fiddler in your life? When did it first come into your life? And when did you start to really feel a connection to it? I 
my first encounter with Fiddler was probably the film as a kid. And I think for me, as it was for probably many people growing up in my generation, um, I actually think that there was, you know, the initial wave of people that came over from Europe at the turn of the century, followed by the next wave of people that came over after the Second World War. Um, they maintained their culture, their language, their traditions in America. The generation after them, which are sort of my parents, somewhat walked away from that, wanting to be wanted to be considered Americans mm-hmm. and Americanizing whatever that now means. Um, their Meanwhile, language, right now we're like, no thanks, never mind. Right, it. but what's really interesting, of course, is that my generation sort of inherited that secularism, and then as we grew up, took interest in our cultural ancestry later in life and now trying to both own the the specialness of what it means to be an an American five, six generations Mm -hmm. from immigration and for some people 10, 12, 13 generations. Um, But I don't think I'm unique in that way, that I had a pretty secular upbringing with this knowledge that I had relatives that had had this experience in the Pale of Settlement. Yeah. And so I connected with it. you tell people it. what that is in case oh, they don't sure. know? So the Pale of the Pale or the Pale of Settlement was an area that was, um, for better, there are going to be people that argue this term, but basically a very large area of land that could or could not be considered a very large ghetto. Yeah. Um, Meaning, uh, not that it was run down or tumbled down in any way, but meaning that it was a place that was designated for Jews to live. And it encompassed um, a lot of what is now modern-day Russia, Ukraine, parts of Poland, Lithuania. Uh, It's a very, very large area of land in Eastern Europe, you know, and the the western part of Russia. And uh, it was just this area where Jews were first encouraged and then commanded to live and as history turned on in as we see the very beginning whispers of it at the end of Fiddler on the Roof uh, eventually that area started becoming smaller and smaller as land was being seized by the governments of those countries and so that's where Fiddler on the Roof takes place yes it takes place in a shtetl in the Pale of Settlement which uh, could be conceived of as modern day Ukraine maybe modern day Lithuania there are arguments about exactly where this fictional town of Anatevka is. It's certainly based on many similar towns. And, and some, you have roots there. Yeah, I do. So my family is from a shtetl town just outside Odessa in modern day Ukraine. Amazing. Yeah. So that's what that is, you know, and I, I definitely feel very connected to it. And yeah, for me as a kid, seeing the film was like my connection to Judaism, really. My connection to, and I loved, I always loved musicals, but it was a bit of a history lesson and a bit of a cultural lesson of, oh, I have members of my actual family that had that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it always felt very poignant to me. And then, I don't want to brag, but <laughs> I was deeply excellent sophomore year of high school as Golda. Yes, I was reading about this tour to force performance. I don't. Don't be jealous if you missed it in Metro Detroit. Um, I have photos that I will show you. We can maybe put yes. online for oh the li- listeners. Because, um, I mean, I gave you some like very serious bonnet action. And <laughs> Did you make your own costume? My mother made of the co- all the costumes. My yes. mother's a very talented costume designer. Oh. She made all the costumes. But, um, no, and actually that was uh, an incredibly important experience because in a funny way, it kind of prepared me to be 
in very, very, very ready to audition for it when it came up in my professional life because yeah. I was super, super familiar with the show. So when the audition came, I was like ready to go. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, left it for many years, saw how many community theater productions. Of course. And my first encounter with it was in England. So I went to college in Scotland. Which is so amazing. It's a little wackadoo. Yeah. yeah. Your career, your career is so amazing. Thank, thank you. Because I, I just want to say, dear, dear listeners. <laughs> Listen for, up, guys. For those of you listening out there. I'm going to use my pillow talk voice. But dear listeners, like... If any of you are out there, like, sitting on your sofa, binge-streaming Golden Girls next to your cat, like I do. I was going to say, like, that's that's my life. Now. Yeah, like, goals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if, if you're sitting on your sofa wondering, like, do people that you look up to that you think have, I put this in giant quotations, have made it, do they do that too? The answer is yes. Like, I, I absolutely have days where I'm like, no, what am girl, I doing? Yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and... And yet it's interesting to sort of, when you do see it all written down, like to, to think about where you started and to think about how far you've come, it is very moving. And also all the things that I've fought through and worked through and, yeah. and, and endured. But yeah, I went, to, I went to Scotland actually sort of as a, a reaction, as, as a response to probably the, um, what will always be this huge mammoth event in my life, which was my dad passing away right after I graduated from high school when I was just 18. And I think for me, I was, I mean, it's a, it's never easy or pleasant to lose someone you care about. It's this sort of universally horrible event. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, the thing I I really learned about it living through it was that it's, it's an event and a, a grief is an emotion that transcends culture and language and time period. Yeah that it's something that everyone will go through and everyone fears the most. And I think for me, um, what I learned was that eight, it, while it's never easy, 18 is a very peculiar time because you, you don't have the innate resilience of a child. Right. But you're not an adult. You're not done being raised. Totally. And so you're in this funny limbo place where you have enough autonomy to know what your instincts are, what your destiny might be, what your dreams are, and how, and you have like an innate blueprint of how you feel about the world and your place in it, but you don't have any practice. And so I think for me, I had this huge realization that I kind of had two options, which was I had gone to an amazing performing arts high school and summer camp called Interlock and Arts Academy. Yeah, of course. And had done incredible work there with incredible people. I was there at a very um, particularly amazing era with Ben Walker and Michael Arden and Santino Fontana and incredible time and cutting my teeth with incredible performers even then. And so I knew that I knew what my dreams were. Uh, And I thought, okay, well, this horrible thing has happened. And I just felt very deeply at 18. I kind of look at it now and go, how did I know? But it was in my cells really okay, no one would blame me if I curled up and died too. Uh-huh. You know, no one would say, oh, she, she never did it. They'd go, oh, poor thing. Yeah. What, what bad luck. And, um, or I could, in the face of all of this loss and death and lack of life, I could really live. Mm-hmm. I could have a huge adventure. And I 
decided to just get on a plane and go. Did you have to apply? Like, how did you make it actually happen? Yeah, the, the actualities of it, if I'm being perfectly frank, I mean, I know there were actualities. I don't have, like, a lot of memories yeah, yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. But, because it, and it's, and I, I have a very good memory. It was just, like, a time where it was, like, I kind of woke up in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I did have to apply. What I remember was not having any concept of, like, I wonder if it's hard to get in. Or, <laughs> right. I wonder if Glasgow is a hospitable place to live. Like, I, none of these things like occurred to me it was just like this is what's happening now and what was the school called the royal conservatoire of scotland and it's a four-year program it's a a, equivalent to a four-year program it's a three-year program but it's a calendar year long Uh so um it's the same number of weeks but you you're done in a one year less yeah so i i did it was you know the sort of quintessential drama school experience and i had this huge adventure and right out of my in, out of my final year of school after getting my degree in <laughs> acting um i got a job in the west end in the woman in white how did that ha- did you audition like how did that happen it was that's kind of a crazy story tell me so in our final year one of the things that uh in in a drama school situation sort of in a conservatory situation there's sort of two there's two ways of going about casting productions um one is that and this is sort of done at Juilliard and in many of the British and European drama schools, the classes are so small uh, that they basically assign you roles. Whereas there are other programs where you audition and compete with your classmates and upper and lower classmen for roles in a situation that mocks a professional situation, Mm -hmm. right? And there's pros and cons to both of these things. Like one is... uh, when you when you do audition, you get the experience of preparing, attempting to win, and sometimes learning how to endure the disappointment of not getting uh-huh. a role, mm-hmm. which is a very important lesson. Um, but of course, there's lots of things like you're competing at a very tender time in your development, and you know, is the purpose of school to learn or is it to comp- you know all yeah, kinds of stuff. Yeah. But then on the other side, um, so I was in such a small year group that there wouldn't have been anybody to compete with you know it was like um so it what was wonderful about it is oftentimes you were given a role for the extreme purpose that it was not suitable to you Uh and you were then like tasked with this assignment to really stretch yourself um i loved it because it was it it created um what ultimately ended up feeling like a repertory company Uh uh-huh um and you know i ended up playing things that in the real world i might never even consider myself capable of doing. But now I'm like, oh, I like played Mariah in Twelfth Night. I yeah. played Electra. I did things that I go, I, I, it's sort of like you go, oh, I didn't think I could run a marathon, but then I did. Mm-hmm. And now I mm-hmm. know that my body can do that. Um, so because of that, in our final year, they had this whole like semester of teaching us how to audition. And I'm no dummy. The people <laughs> that were teaching these classes were casting directors. right? So I was like, well... While I understand this is an academic situation, and I'm sure they do too, if they saw somebody that was amazing and ready to go, I'm sure they'd remember. Yeah, yeah. So among the many things we did, you know, film and TV and, you know, for various theater groups and physical theater auditions and classical theater auditions, because it was a, I did a classical acting program, they did this sort of somewhat hilarious um, workshop for a musical theater audition for the 
uh, straight classical actors should that situation never occur. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, it was, it was literally just like a, a co- covering their bases kind of a class. And I had this call of destiny in my head. Like, I just had this very strong instinct. I went, okay, well, again, presented with a choice. I could totally blow this off because I totally know what I'm doing. Or if I took take this seriously, my life could change. Uh-huh. So I went, okay, I'm just, I'm going to wear the outfit. I'm going to come in with the book and I'm ready to go. And this really great guy um, was hearing people sing like a whole new world, uh, you know, acapella yeah. kind of situation. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, just these, it was adorable listening at the door. And I went in and I sang, will he like me? And then I, he was like, can you, you know, do you have a chest voice? Do you have a jazzy voice? And I was in there for like 40 minutes and I'll never forget him. His name's Kennedy Aitchinson, wherever you are. <laughs> thank you. Huge theater people fan. Um, just <laughs> if you're listening. Um, and he was like, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Alexandra Silber. And I was 21. And he called sort of the big, big casting director in London named David Grindrod. They were looking to replace um, Jill Pace in The Woman in White in the West End. And, you know, to bring this story to a close already, (laughs) eight weeks later, I was doing it. Did you have to audition more? Yeah, I had two auditions, three auditions. And uh, it was absolute whirlwind crazy oh my god i don't even think i really fully understood what was going on Uh i'm being honest Uh like i i didn't really have a grasp on what the west end even was Uh uh-huh i no one like explained it like al this is like broadway but it's in london like no one kind of did you know and you know i think i was even like oh i'm i'm familiar with andrew lloyd webber But again, I had sort of been like doing Shakespeare under a train, like covered in mustard. You yeah, know, I yeah, was, yeah, 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 yeah. I was in just a totally different mindset. And so all of a sudden I'm like in this Android Weber musical directed by Trevor Nunn opposite Ruthie Henshaw and wow. Anthony Andrews and these huge theater stars. And I, I don't know. It was, it was a really interesting lesson too. Also in, um, just in the same way that I was sort of blessed with ignorance about the audition for Glasgow I was sort of like, well, this character's 21 and she has to sing within this range and she has this emotional journey and like, I don't know, they have to cast somebody. Like I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I, I think it's really interesting, you know, sometimes they say that like youth is wasted on the young, Yeah. but I have to be honest, I think that like somewhere between 16 and 25, like we really got it going on in the moxie mixed with ignorance department <laughs> because you don't know to be scared. It's everybody. You know, everybody on this podcast says that everybody. you don't know to be scared, yeah. and so I think that was definitely something that I possessed and, and try to hold on to, and I, I think have uh, that's vacillated over the years. But that began my career in London, and when I um, finished it, I thought I, I think I want to stay. So I was attempting to stay, and uh, that summer, the summer after we closed, I I auditioned for and booked Fiddler. 1.0 it turned out um and it was a it was an absolute dream i i knew that it had to be hoddle i knew i had to tell her story but i had no idea how much it was going to haunt me and how much it was going to affect me and now a few words from our sponsors it's finally officially summer and the best part of summer is camp but for real theater geeks, there's only one camp to go to where surprise visits from Broadway stars, Hamilton sing-alongs, and dance-offs are as normal as bunk beds and sunscreen. And that's Stage Door Manor. 
You guys have heard me talking about Stage Door for the past few months, but it's time for Curtains Up on another summer of unbelievable performances. The inspiration for Todd Graff's movie Camp and Mickey Rapkin's book Theater Geek, Stage Door is the performing arts training center for kids ages 10 to 18 in upstate New York that puts on an unbelievable 14 shows during each of its three-week sessions. I can't wait to tell you some of the shows they're putting on for this summer. Past Stage Door premieres include original stage versions of Rent, Avenue Q, Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party, and Woman in White. In addition to those shows, there are more than 100 classes at beginning and advanced levels. Everything from playwriting to stage combat. There are no auditions for admissions. They accept all levels of experience and talent and find roles for students in shows where everyone can have his or her moment in the spotlight. To find out more about Stage Door, go to stagedoormanor.com. So just to tell the listeners that after Anna Tevka, the book that you've just written, which we have to get to, it tells Hoddle's story. <clears throat> right. So and I and I don't want to like skip I mean I don't want to like skip no. over the rest of it but like you because of course you then yeah, went on course. to Broadway to play a different role. Yeah. So the the thing that's kind of crazy is I so I started playing Hoddle in we started rehearsing October of 2006 I guess. And it was a production that began out of town in a beautiful um regional theater outside London outside not outside London. Um in the regions called Sheffield, the Sheffield Crucible Theater. Um, and we initially just thought it was like a, hilariously, a Christmas job. (laughs) Um, and it ultimately transferred to the Savoy in London in the West End. And so from top to tail, it was probably two and a half years. And what I didn't really realize until I guess now in this era of my life is that there was a very one, I had tabled the actual grieving experience of losing my dad to kind of get on with my life and become myself. I had a responsibility to do that, you know? And I distracted myself by convincing myself that achievement was stability. Uh Uh-huh. Was that achievement was evidence that I was okay. And I think we all do that. Yep. You know? That we go, well, I turned out fine because look what everything I've done. And actually, what you haven't done is like the inner work. (laughs) So suddenly I kind of woke up five years later and realized that I had never really gotten a chance to grieve or actually say goodbye to my dad suddenly tasked with daily saying goodbye to my dad. Yeah. Explain to people Huddle's journey. So what happens is Huddle is a, you know, the second eldest daughter of Tevye, um, in a shtetl community, a, you know, a, a Hasidic Jewish community in the Pale of Settlement. And, you know, where they've followed traditions for thousands of years. They're matched with their husbands. They have children. It's a very purpose-based life. And ultimately, um, their world is penetrated by changing and by differences. And what happens to Huddle is she meets a young socialist student named Perchik. Uh, they fall very, very madly in love uh, decide to become engaged. Uh, Tevya sort of reticently agrees to give him their ble- to give him his blessing, and Perchik is ultimately arrested and sent to a Siberian work camp. And in Huddle's final scene, she is explaining to her father why she's leaving Anatevka to go join Perchik in Siberia, and she sings this beautiful song, "Far from the Home I Love," in what I kind of consider to be one of the two most perfect musical theater scenes on par with the bench scene in Carousel. To me, they're, <laughs> they're like 
there's no fat on them. They're perfectly constructed. And she boards this train to Siberia, never to be heard from again. And I think, so... and she says to her father, "Father, Papa, God alone knows when we shall see each other again." You're gonna make me cry, right? And and he says, "Then we shall leave it in his hands." And so, you know, I said that probably close to nine hundred times, and it it still wasn't enough. It, mm-hmm. I, I was, I'll, I'll say this that I think at the time, and certainly. Um, it, it holds a barometer for me because it was kind of like the first time you fall in love, right? Um, I, I've definitely been inhabited since then, but you never forget your first time. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first time that I had been met with a character that inhabited my, like the marrow of my bones in this way. It took over every part of me. And it wasn't until now that I see this parallel between an 18, 19 year old girl that gets on a train to Siberia and an 18, 19 year old girl that gets on a plane to Scotland. Yeah. And that by sort of seeing Hoddle's story through, um, seeing her strength and tenacity and capacity to endure through, I was simultaneously doing that for myself. So ultimately, you, you the, this is what After Anna, After Anna Tevka is about. It's yeah. her journey after the show. Yes. So she wakes up in Siberia. Basically, the, the book opens with her kind of coming to in a prison cell. And, you know, the the it's told in three parts. Um, I really wanted it to feel theatrical. I wanted it to feel like a three act play. Yeah. So the first book is how does Hoddle find and get to Perchik ultimately, and then told through a series. the ba- The backstory is filled in through a series of flashbacks, sort of uh, familiarizing us with her family and her life in Anatevka. And I wanted it. I wanted the book to feel standalone. That if you had no knowledge of the musical, you would feel that you had a grasp of this story. And I wanted it to be its own piece of historical fiction. But if you do know the musical, it's wonderful, wonderful insider information because it's a lot of s- scenes between the scenes that we see on stage. Uh-huh. You know, questions that I always had, like... I always wondered, for example, there's this really beautiful moment just before the beautiful model and sidle scene where they beg Tevya for their you know permission to get married and then he sings Wonder of Wonders. But Perchik leaves the stage in a huff and he passes model. And I always wondered, I wonder if Perchik bore witness to that scene somewhere, if he watched model fight for Seidel and was inspired by that oh my god and i i wanted I to expo- chill yeah i wanted to explore what that would be and then similarly i always thought what is the you know what is the nature of the intricacies and nuances of these relationships between these five girls I, i'm under no delusions that these characters belong to me uh-huh, they belong course, to yeah. everyone yeah. you know and um but i think that what ultimately is mine if such a thing is is true is i i do imprint my belief system that in times of adversity which i've experienced um it is hope and the human capacity to endure and love that keeps us going okay artist questions yeah how did you know you could write a book i didn't i have i have a blog um, which I've had for over 10 years now. Actually, I think exactly 10 years now. This is its 10-year anniversary. Wow. Um, I've had I, a blog called London Still that I started, interestingly, writing during Fiddler 1.0. Um, 
I feel like I should call it Fiddler and then like Fiddler Phantom Menace, but, <laughs> um, but so during Fiddler in London, I, I think I realized like, I don't know. I think I had this realization that many adults have, but I just had it a little early, mm-hmm. which was, oh my God, my teenage dreams came true. And it's not all rainbows. <laughs> you know, you, you don't really realize that you're not going to like pull into the train station of made it. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that there's no train station. And I, yeah. I, I think my realization was this. It was, oh, I guess I didn't realize because you don't know this in college, especially as if you want to be an actor. That the act of doing a long-running musical, a commercial run, if you will, is is creative initially, but the creative process happens in the workroom and probably in the fir- for me anyway the first like five months of a run, and then after that it's technique that takes over, mm-hmm. and you kind of have those really creative discover ba- discovery based days every once in a while, but. For me, it's my principles and my technique that keep me going. Like, I want the person that comes at a year to still get my best 100% I have that day. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and I think a lot of people feel that way. But it certainly isn't creative daily yeah. anymore. And what I discovered was, oh, I'm not really a performer. I don't feel like I'm in the middle of my life purpose just because I'm on stage bearing my soul. It's the act of creation that's my life purpose. And that's an interesting piece of data, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I thought, okay, well, I could like whine about that and be really, really sad, which I probably was for a couple of weeks. <laughs> or I could take charge of my own life experience and my own creativity. And a, a literary agent in London, I will always be indebted to, because this really was her idea, um, wrote to me. She came to Carousel and was like, who is this girl? And she wrote to me, read my blog. And she said, you know, I think you could write something of book length. And I was like, perhaps you are confused because I write about jam right. <laughs> um, and diagnosis murder. Um, so, but she basically convinced me to, that this was, that this specific idea of like sort of what happens to Hoddle was one personal, something I had passion for, some obviously a world that I, I didn't need to create. It was already present for me but also on a very basic level that it was just one essay at a time that, you know, if you just sit down and write a chapter, you know, at the end of the day, you look and you go, I, I've written 350 words that didn't exist in the, in the world before I put them down. And before you know it, you have something to edit and shape and collect. And it, um, it, I, I will also say that I felt like the book emerged from me. Like once I committed to it as a concept, there are certain characters in the book, for those of you who have read it, um, there's a character predominantly in the second half of the book named Dmitry Petrov that is a totally original creation, but I don't feel like I can even take credit for his existence because he's a character, this has never happened to me before, <laughs> that I felt like he was like, hello, I'm Dmitry Petrov. Um, you have been selected by the the gods of writing for me to come into the world, and I'm just going to sit here and tell you my story, and you can write it down. Like wow. it felt like that. It felt like it was sort of like that old world concept of not having genius, not being a genius, but possessing a genie that like whispered to you from the gods of yeah, creativity. Yeah, yeah. There were moments like that where once you're in the groove, it's like the gods of writing are like, oh, she's open. Here's the thunderbolt. Uh-huh, and totally. you just have to be ready to go. And um, 
So I, I, I not only wrote a novel, I kind of learned how to write mm-hmm. a novel while I was doing it. And it was, it's been so edifying and, and has made my relationship with my acting and performance work so much richer too, because I have a looser grip on it. Mm-hmm. it I have a, a looser grip on what I need it to mean to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need it for validation or to fulfill me. I've taken charge of my own fulfillment mm-hmm. and in all honesty, I never really dreamed that this book or the following book would be... You're writing another one? Yeah. So they, actually, Pegasus Books, who's published after Anatevka, um, has also bought my next book, which is a very different book um, in tone. It's a, it's a sort of comedy grief memoir about my father passing away wow. called White Hot Grief Parade. <laughs> that is coming out, hopefully all things being well, Father's Day weekend of 2018. Oh my god! So it's it's you know something that has become professional, but I really did write it for me. I wrote it because it needed to be out. Yeah, and the act of creation needed to happen. Um, so there was something very pure about it. Um, the fact that it's being shared is sort of a dream beyond imagining. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the act of writing. It's just something that it's like anything, one foot in front of the other, one sentence at a time. You're amazing. Oh. We have to wrap up. I know, but can will you come back and yeah. talk to us? Because we have to talk about Masterclass. We have to talk about Hello again. We have to talk about... <sighs> there's so much more from your theatrical Let's career. Let's do an well. act two. Let's do an act two. Great. We'll do it very soon. Done. I'm obsessed with you. It's very mutual. Will you move into my house? Yeah, sure. Okay. I'll sing to your child. Amazing. Great. Okay, Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, I really cannot express how much I love the production of 1984, currently playing at the Hudson Theater. And Reed Bernie, you guys, I'm obsessed with him. He is truly terrifying in this production and is just an absolute master of the craft of acting. He won a Tony Award last year for his work in The Humans. He's also been seen on Broadway in Casa Valentina. Picnic and Gemini, and his 29 off-Broadway credits include this year's The Man from Nebraska and Circle Mirror Transformation. I was so excited to meet him. Here's our conversation. Hi, Reed Bernie. Hello. Thank you for having us to your dressing room and, and for being on the Theater People podcast. Very excited. Thank you. So as we were walking up the stairs, you were telling us a little bit of the history of the theater. Will you, will you, will you say it for our listeners? The Hudson, the Hudson Theater was built in 1903, so it is literally the oldest Broadway theater. And now the newest, too, because uh, it's just been refurbished. But a uh, husband and wife couple, uh, the uh, Harrises, built the theater together, lived in a duplex apartment above the theater that's still there. And um, they uh, were very successful. Uh, Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway sang here in the 20s. But in 1912, they were um, in London looking for plays to bring back. And they came back on the Titanic. And... Uh, she gave him all the jewels for safekeeping, and he went down, no! and uh, and she survived, which made her the first female Broadway producer. And she had it until the um, 30s, and she lost it in, in the Depression. It became a radio studio and a television studio. And The Tonight Show with Steve Allen started here, and Elvis Presley sang Hound Dog on this stage. It was a very big deal at the time. Then some game shows, The Price is Right and things. And then it became a legitimate theater again in the 60s. Laurence Olivier did Beckett on this stage. Jane Fonda wow. did Strange Interlude. Uh, Lillian Hellman's Toys in the Attic was here. So it's got an amazing history. And then it became an art movie house and then a porno movie house. <laughs> and then a gay porno movie house. Yeah. 
you know, it was just the <laughs> natural progression of things. And then it became, um, it was abandoned for 20 years. Wow. And, uh, and uh, it became an event space when the hotel built around mm-hmm. it. And then three years ago, the Ambassador Theater Group started refurbishing it. And here we are. Wow. Well, so 1984, first of all, Jesus Christ. It is, I mean, it is some of the most electrifying, terrifying, truly scary, wonderful theater I've ever seen. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. So I was reading today that the the show was like in London. It did really well in London on the West End uh, for a while. And then it toured the U.S. And then... Now it's here. And sort of the obvious question of like, why do you think now is the right time? I think it is quite obvious why now is the right time. It was written in 2013 by Robert Icke and Duncan McMillan in response to the Edward Snowden scandal. And that was uh, terrifying at the time, the whole idea of the government surveillance and blah, blah, blah. Um, But... uh, and it, it was originally a tour with the Headlong Theater Group, and then it came into the Almeida, and then for the next four years came into the West End in the summertime. It was like a summer show, not really light summer <laughs> fair. Um, and then I think after the election, Sonia Friedman and Scott Rudin said, I think this is a very good time for 1984 to be in New York. It came together very, very quickly. Your, your writer-directors are very young. I was surprised to, to learn. Um, and they're sort of like well-known figures in London. We don't really know them here, but they're like 30. How Can you talk a little bit about like working with them on this and what their perspective from that like very – like what seems to me to be a very like young age and why they wanted to do this? It is shocking to think that they're 30 and I think 34. Duncan is 34. But they are so brilliant that you actually feel like you're in the presence of – masters wise old masters like you know sam jaffe and lost horizon you're sitting there at the the dalai lama's feet um so uh they were just so smart about uh not only the theatricality and the stagecraft which is so impressive in our play uh that it's it's theatrical and then also very heady to realize that george orwell saw all of this in 1948. If somebody just wrote a play about a dystopian universe today, you'd say, oh, they're just jumping on the bandwagon, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that it's 70 years old um, is really shocking. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading that um, 1984 was like the number one best-selling book on Amazon the day that Kellyanne Conway made the alternative facts comment. That's right. Right. So it's also the number one book that people lie about having read. (laughs) I've never read it. My husband is horrified. Well, we all were supposed to read it in eighth grade. Yeah. And I think I read it, but I could have lied about it too. Well, it's funny because I – so in the, the – your show does the thing that I love the most that, that a play does, which is you have no idea what is going on for the first – if you don't know the, the story, which I did not at all. Right. I sort of knew about Big Brother and that that was a, a part of it, but you have no idea what is happening for the first 15 minutes of the play. And I'm wondering, I wanted to talk to you about the rehearsal process because your play is so intense physically, emotionally, like intellectually. Was it, can you take us a little bit like what it, what it was like to like sit around a table with these great actors for the first time and really like read this? Like what, what was that experience like? 
Well, it's interesting, um, Rob, because this is the 11th time he's mounted this play in the last four years. So, you know, it's a fairly well-oiled machine as far as they're concerned. So um, he was very respectful about not saying, and now you cross here and now you sit here. Uh, At the same time, they knew how it worked. So there was a wonderful balance of... um, of letting us discover things that we thought were great. And they were so excited when we found something. But the, the footprint was pretty much determined. Um, there, We spent a lot of time, interestingly, playing theater games, which I've never been all that crazy about, especially having done Circle Mirror Transformation. Um, you know, I, that was my revenge on all those theater exercises. But we played a lot of Mafia, that game where you know, somebody's the mafia and nobody else knows who and they kill people to really explore this sense of paranoia and um, terror that, you know, who can you trust, which is essential to the play. Um, and it was really fun and, uh, and and very good. We had six weeks of rehearsal. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, because these days you get two and a half before yeah, yeah. tech. So um, I think Sonia really wanted to make sure that we bonded as a group, and um, and we did. It was so much fun. It's really been a, a hoot, as strange as that is to say. I wanted to ask you about that because you you guys are all these great actors with these great pedigrees and award winning, and you know, and the and the show is so serious. I mean, you guys are just working up there, and I was wondering what that is like then back. Back, like you guys, it just seems like, I don't know, living in the world of 1984 for 101 minutes, you know, I, I have to imagine that it is sterile and terrifying and like fluorescent lights. Is it not like that at all? It's it's not like that. We, <laughs> we really are having a ball. Uh, and I don't know whether that's in reaction to the seriousness of the play. Uh, it could very well be, or just that uh, they have assembled a, a very funny group of people who love to laugh and... And we we do work hard when we have to work, when it comes time to work. You know, there's no cutting up on stage, which happens <laughs> sometimes. Um, I think we all t- I think we all feel a, a great responsibility in telling this cautionary tale, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, because it kind of is a cautionary tale yeah. about where we could be headed and maybe even where we are. Yeah. I wanted to talk about your character, okay. O'Brien, right? So... <laughs> You're just so scary. How, <laughs> how, and I think the, the thing about your performance that, or your character that is so scary is how completely normal everything seems to him. Can you talk about finding your way into that? And like, the, how do you make something scary? Well, um, I, I, I don't know. I, my first thought when I read the play was that he was kind of like a camp counselor. <laughs> he His thing was, um, Winston, you're afraid of the water? Well, we're going to teach you to swim this summer. And, scary and you're going to, it's going to be scary, but you're going to have a ball. At the end of the day, you're going to be able to swim, and it's going to be good, you know? So um, I think that that automatically becomes creepy when he's so sure he's right. And actually some of the dialogue, the dialogue really supports that because I say things like, I'm taking time with you, Winston, because you're worth time. If I'm just a mustache twirling bad guy, that, that doesn't make any sense. I really think I'm helping him. <laughs> just as uh, a lot of people in our current world think they're helping us. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what's so terrifying about them. They think they're right. I want to ask you uh, like an inside baseball question. Okay. And I just made a sports reference, everybody. Um, what? Okay, so the, the thing about your character that we as an audience don't know is if you're a good guy or a bad guy until the end or, you know, until towards the end. What is going through O'Brien's head in the scene where Winston and Olivia Wilde's character's name, I can't think of Julia. it. Julia. come to his house or his, his office, office yeah. and they are confessing to him how much they want to, like, how, how much they want to resist. Right. What is going through his mind? Well, I think that um, O'Brien, I think you're not supposed to know if he's in the party or against the party. Um, just as I think you're not supposed to know if Julia is in the party totally. or against the party. And maybe there is no against the party. Maybe against the party is actually part of the party. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, yes, that they, that, uh, and I feel like this happens in our current world, that they they make us think that there are enemies so that we'll be distracted by that um, when, in fact, there aren't any enemies uh, it's a topsy-turvy world. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about the production of it because I'm wondering, what, are you hearing things as an actor from this? Like, are, Is the audience engaging in, in a way that they didn't in the humans? Oh, yeah. Um, well, obviously in the torture scene, people are yeah. fainting. And, is that and really happening? It really is happening. I know people think that's some weird publicity thing. <laughs> Nurses will be standing by in the lobby. Um, no, people have fainted and people have thrown up. And twi- Jennifer Lawrence threw up. Well, that wasn't... She, poor Jennifer Lawrence had gotten the stomach flu. Oh, she did. So it was a coincidence that she threw up. She left way before the throw up part came. But um, uh, we had people twice stand up and say, is there a doctor in the house? Uh, which <laughs> I never wow. thought I would hear that. In my whole life long, I felt like I was in a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> Elmer Fudd stands up. Is there a doctor in the house? But one of those times was for your star. Um, no, actually, we actually asked if there was a doctor in the house for that when Tom wow. when Tom passed out. What happened there? He was dehydrated. It was one of those hideously hot days. Yeah. And we'd done two shows. And he was exhausted. And he hadn't um, drunk enough. So, um, And were you on stage with him when yeah. that happened? Yeah. What, is you, what is your job as a human slash actor at that point? Well, we finished the play. And I could tell he was in trouble. Um, I didn't know how much trouble. I, I knew he was struggling. But he's very... Uh, forthright and and you know he's never going to let anything get him down so the curtain came down and he turned to me and he said i I need a doctor wow so uh we actually didn't do a curtain call that night because we just started uh getting calling the ambulance and and then over the pa they asked if there was a doctor or a nurse in the house And, and two people came back very nice and then the emts arrived and there was tom lying on the ground covered in blood because that happens in the play. Because that happens in the play. And they were, I don't think they knew they were at a theater. They didn't know where they were. So this looked like a horrible crime scene to them. The guy had been attacked. And I wanted to ask, so there's a moment in the play where his character is being tortured. And he, and the fourth wall, it gets broken. Or I think that that's what happens. Yes. And he's begging the audience for help. Yes. Is there a contingency plan if somebody stands up to try to help? Twice people have shouted at me from the audience to stop. Wow. 
and um, yeah, we have uh, we have you know things that we have talked about doing and that I have done when the audience uh, does that. So um, I feel like since the reviews and since the the buzz is around town about what happens, people have been better prepared. <laughs> but we still have people getting upset. It is upsetting. You know, the truth is people feel like uh, some of the criticism has been that it's torture porn and blah, uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. But I don't know how you can have torture and not have it be upsetting. Right. Uh, I think the whole idea of it is going it's going to be upsetting. You can't just hit him with a wet noodle. <laughs> You've got to really do it. And um, it's in the book. So I, I, there, there's a large difference between reading about torture and then actually seeing it. And it's, it's beautifully staged. The stagecraft of it is terrific. But, you know, people need to know we do it eight times a week. It's right. a play. Yeah. Every, no animals have been harmed in the making of this motion picture. And almost every time he doesn't pass out. The truth is we don't actually show anything on stage. Right. It's We cut away. We black out before yeah. any... But the power of imagination is so incredible. And when you don't know what the torture is going to be, right. it is terrifying. And you see the aftermath, and that's uh, effectively done. Yeah. But the play, you know, the, I, I think it's important to stress that the play is so much more than the torture. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like we're getting this rep as the best throw-up ride in town. <laughs> and and I, I, don't, I think it's so much more than that. It's a, it's a beautifully crafted piece of theater. I think it's very entertaining. We're getting uh, um, an enormous amount of young people who I think have never been to the theater before because there's something intriguing to them about it. You know, the Brits have a much longer history of violence in their theater, starting with Shakespeare. And our Broadway audiences, you know, all our plays are about should I adopt a baby? (laughs) (laughs) Couples on the Upper West Side, should I adopt a baby? Yes, no, the end. (laughs) I want to, you don't want to. Now we've got to play. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> this is a very, very unusual play for Broadway. And I think for that reason, it is uh, incredibly important and worthwhile. Yeah. Just to go right back to the torture, um, how do you do it? Like, how, does it take a toll on you to, to play this role? It, I, it's weird to say, but no. <laughs> <laughs> the humans was much harder. Why? Well, I had to be so emotionally distraught yeah. during the humans and I had to cry every night yeah. and eat Thanksgiving dinner every night. <laughs> was, was real food? Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, just barely real food. Right. <laughs> you know, if it had been real Thanksgiving dinner, it would have been amazing. But, no, it was turkey cubes and, you know, potato flakes. and right. Yeah. But um, that was a much harder play to do. This this is um, uh, I think it's it's actually weirdly easy for me. Yeah, are politicians coming? Um, I don't know if they are. I, I I think there's a plan to have have people come. Um, Olivia knows a lot of those folks. Oh yeah, and I, I think she's you know trying to to get um, the important ones here. <laughs> they should seem to be seeing a lot of plays lately. Hillary's going to a lot of plays. Yeah. You know, they haven't come. Yeah. They haven't come. I, I think a lot of people are staying away because they're scared. <laughs> Just, you know, Hillary might be scared. <laughs> 
Well, that's all I have for you. I mean, it's such an honor. It's such a pleasure oh, to meet you and to you. talk to you. I, my, my last question, I meant for this to be my first question. Okay. Where are we? Where are we right now? We're in my dressing room. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say, where do you think we are? Oh, where do you think you are, <laughs> Winston? Yeah. Oh, it's where am I, not where are we. No, I say to him a million times in the play, where do you think you are, yeah. Winston? Yeah, and it's terrifying. And terrifying. <laughs> well, where do you think you are? <laughs> Thanks, Reed Bernie. Thank you so very nice much. to meet you. You too. Okay, bye. Thank you. All right, you guys, as you know, Theater People is the official sponsor of BroadwayCon 2018. So we're sharing stories from past BroadwayCon attendees about their favorite things they experienced at BroadwayCon that can only be experienced at BroadwayCon. This was sent to us by one of my favorite listeners, whose Twitter handle is GratefulBWayFan, and it gets to the heart of one of my favorite things about BroadwayCon, that it's the great Broadway equalizer. At BroadwayCon, people like Kelly O'Hara and Andrew Keenan-Bolger are, of course, Kelly O'Hara and Andrew Keenan-Bolger, but they're also fans walking around the marketplace, sitting in on panels. It really is just an amazing thing to see and be a part of. My favorite part of BroadwayCon 2017 was getting to meet all of my favorite creatives and actors and feeling like I had equal seating at the table and getting to interact with them on a really human level. I learned a lot about the community that weekend, and it's something that I'll take with me for the rest of my theater-loving life. Tickets for BroadwayCon 2018 are now on sale, and they've never been less expensive. Find information, including super reasonable hotel deals for that weekend, and tickets at BroadwayCon.com. And send your 60-second voice memo about your favorite BroadwayCon experience to Patrick at TheaterPeople.com. And that's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. Theater People is a product of Theater Podcast Productions and is produced by Mike Jensen and me, Patrick Hines. Mike edited this episode. To see all the shows we make, including our new true crime comedy podcast, check out theaterpodcastproductions.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Stage Door Manor. Check them out at stagedoormanor.com and BroadwayCon. You can check them out at broadwaycon.com. Special thanks also to our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Roselle, Cynthia Wallach, and Ty Williams. Thanks also to Steve Tipton, Eric Emsch, Keith Allen Herzog, Max Sadaka, Grace Fromm, Ellen Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back next week with Cats, Cats's, Cats, Cats, Tyler Haynes. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. Tradition. Tradition.